Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a series of podcasts from Verant featuring chats and discussions with leading figures from the contact center, CX and customer engagement industry in the Asia-Pacific region. During this series, we want to find out what customer service organizations are doing during these challenging times and try and discover what it is that drives the leaders in this space and what makes them tick. My name is Martin Riddle, and as well as being your host for this series, I'm also Verence Vice President of Marketing for the region. And whilst it's my pleasure to chat with so many great leaders on this podcast, I thought it'd be nice to have some of my colleagues sit in the host chair from time to time. So it's my pleasure today to hand the baton across to a colleague who has decades of frontline client-side customer engagement experience, Verence Director of Customer Experience Optimization, Mr. Ian Harrison. Ian, over to you, sir. Thank you, Martin, for the introduction. So I'd like to introduce David and his team at Incisive. And Incisive are experts in defining, measuring, and modeling customer and stakeholder perception of value. So this is highly actionable data that informs strategies and it gives us guidance on capitalizing on customers in a way where we can assist to maximize financial value capture and win stakeholder support as well. So David's been working extensively over many years with several of the top 100 companies in New Zealand and helps them by informing strategic marketing decisions with a special focus on differential strategy and performance improvement. So David, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you join us. Thank you, Ian, and thank you very much for having me here. It's nice of you to take the time, given you've been finally, I think, hopefully let out of lockdown in New yes. Zealand a bit more recently. <laughs> We're being let out at um, a minute to midnight on Wednesday night. So I uh, expect I'll be out and about enjoying the new freedoms sometime after midnight. Well, it's good to hear. Um, so, David, you and I have spoken several times previously, and Always, I've found those conversations to be uh, incredibly thought-provoking and they often leave me with ideas bouncing around in my head, which is probably a, a good sign that I've learned something new and interesting. Um, sure. And I'm really keen to sort of get right to it, I guess, and understand um, some of the things that you work on as you think about customer centricity and adding value to organisations. So um, I guess maybe the first question for you to tell us a little bit about is, what exactly it is that you do and how would, how would I define your, your profession to our listeners? Well, it's, um, it's a good question. Um, I, sometimes, I sometimes wonder myself, Ian. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I started my journey in this field um, with a real interest in strategic marketing, yeah. which at the time I was teaching at the University of Auckland Business School. And uh, in that field, you, you, you talk about... Um, where to compete and how to compete. And uh, they're, in, they're questions really you should resolve by having good information at your fingertips. And the, the question of where to compete and how to compete leads you ultimately to talking about differentiation strategy. And uh, along that, about that time, I started reading intensively around um, service quality because everybody was saying that this was a new tool for differentiation. Banks were saying it. I remember Westpac saying they were going to differentiate on service. Well, the question is, what does that mean? And how do you actually achieve that? How do you how do you achieve meaningful differentiation? And I started looking more closely in areas like um, service services, service quality, and that sort of um, movement moved into um, customer satisfaction, which of course includes uh, satisfaction, if you like, with service. 
And the question is, well, what aspects of service do you have to be good at? And I was exposed to a, a guy called um, Klaus, Klaus Fennell, who uh, was a professor at the University of Michigan, and he uh, set up a thing he called the America's the American Customer Satisfaction Index. And that was the forerunner to a company called 4C, which happens to now be in the Verant Stable. Uh, and that company was very successful at building um, a robust model based on, on statistical analysis that demonstrated a relationship between the level of satisfaction that a company might have and um, the strength of the loyalty of its customers. Um, and at the same conference, I was exposed to another fellow called Ray Kortopleski, who was at Customer Satisfaction Director for AT&T. And at a time when they were losing market share, but their customer satisfaction scores were going up, uh, he was on a team called the Fix the Business team. And interestingly, um, he was an electrical engineer, not a, a marketing man by background. So he did what engineers always do, which is to look for problems and look for data to solve those problems. Uh, and uh, he ultimately discovered a very strong predictive relationship between customer perceptions of value and the strength of their loyalty. In fact, what we now know is that there are at least eight customer behaviors that are profitable for a business that are driven by the level of value that people see they're getting. Now, you ask what I do. Uh, I guess what I do is, um, to a degree, I talk to executives about predictive metrics and predictive analytics so that they can understand what's happening, why it's happening, and what to do to fix it, and, what, and critically, what's likely to happen if they stay on the path they're on. So a bit of strategy, a bit of facilitation of strategic development and strategy development, and a lot of information collection and analysis. You've mentioned a few terms there, customer satisfaction. I don't think you've mentioned NPS, but every time I hear customer sat, I think of NPS, and many organisations would think they're measuring those things and they know hopefully what their NPS is and they'd have some measure of, of customer sat. Is that not enough? Is, is that sort of measure too blunt? And do they need guidance from someone like yourself to think more broadly around their measures for of customer centricity? Ian, it's a very thoughtful question. I say that genuinely. NPS is a fine metric in the same way that taking your temperature is a good metric. If you've got a fever and your temperature goes up, the doctor can see that you're sick and something needs to be done. Yeah. It's, not a it's not in itself as a construct, if you like, particularly insightful. It just says that you're doing well or you're doing poorly with your customers. And in that sense, it's very useful. It's a very reliable measure of your franchise with your customers, if you like. What we know is that the intention to recommend is driven by the level of value that people see in the offer that they're receiving from a company. So people who are highly likely to recommend are also likely to be seeing a high level of value delivered to them and vice versa. People who think the value is poor will not be likely to recommend. So on its own, it's a useful indicator of whether or not a company's in good shape with its customers, but it's not particularly actionable. And that's when you'll hear people use the term driver analysis, that you need to understand the drivers of that level of NPS in order to be able to determine where to put your resources to bump that number up and turn it around if it's poor. What we do know is that there are at least eight behaviours, including intention to recommend, that are driven by perceptions of value received from your provider. So is it enough? I, I, don't, I personally don't think so. The key is really the driver analysis 
and the degree to which the questions you've got in your questionnaire fully explain variation in the way people rate their intention to recommend. For many organisations and certainly the ones I've worked in, it's often felt to me like NPS was measured by the marketing team once a quarter um, and you know a report comes out and everybody uh, devours the information and then sets about trying to make some changes. It always seems to me that that's far too after the event and uh, in the current world of um, changing pace and the nimbleness that we require, what are your views on the timeliness of being, of the need to be sort of finger on the pulse of the, the customer sentiment? Mm. Well, I'd put it to you this way, Ian. Would you feel comfortable with measuring, for example, the financial performance of a company on a sort of three monthly basis? Um, would you think that was adequate for managerial purposes? Certainly not. No, well, the same applies to measurement of uh, what it is that's actually driving your financial numbers. So if you accept that satisfaction with quality and with price and costs, or let me put that another way, satisfaction with the value that, that a combination of what you get and what you pay is delivering to you, you need to know as frequently as you need to know how, how frequently the tool's ringing. And that actually is what attracted me to come and talk to 4C in the UK over a year ago now, 18 months ago, when I became aware of the fact that companies need to see that real that data in as close to real time as possible. Where you're dealing with customer experiences, for example, as you know from your work, if, if a customer experience is broken, the quicker you know, the quicker you can fix it, uh, and the less likely you are to start losing market share. Yes. But there's a flip side to this. There's a flip side to this, if I might just comment on it. If we accept that perceived value drives behaviours from customers that are actually essentially profitable for the business, the more we know about that and the quicker we know it, the more chance we've got of driving up the economic value, the financial value that we capture from our customers, which drives up the value of our business. And your customer base becomes an asset in your hands because it, it generates cash flow. So you've always got to look at these things together. What do we need to know and when do we need to know it to protect and grow our cash flow and our profitability? Is there a, a shift in the ownership of customer centricity? Is there a change that's required as to whether it's the marketing team? Where, where does customer centricity sit within an organisation and is it sufficient to think of one owner within the business? Well, you've asked two, two or three very insightful questions. So, so the answer to the last question is absolutely not. Customer centricity belongs to everybody. It's cultural. It's about leadership. It's about a belief that's instilled in behaviours and attitudes that um, if we don't deliver value to customers, we're not going to deliver share, value to shareholders. Yeah. So um, that. the second point I'd make is, and it sort of goes back to what you said before, I used to believe that markets were a given. Um, there's a couple, of, a couple of flaws in that thinking that I've come to re realise. One is you, you, you have to think about not just your products and services and how satisfied people are with them. You've also got to bear in mind how your customers trade off what they get for what they pay. So satisfaction with price and other things that cause concerns or anxieties that represent a cost to the customer. Last point, I used to, when I was teaching marketing in the business school, I used to believe that markets were a given. Uh, it's now increasingly recognised that markets actually are malleable. Uh, you can shape them. And an example of that would be if you think about the iPad. 
No, you didn't get up one morning thinking I needed a television set that I can carry around with me, have it in my briefcase, make phone calls on it, look up information, et cetera, et cetera. That market was shaped by Steve Jobs. He told the world, you've got communication needs. I've thought of a better way to meet them. He created the market for personal communication devices. So there are, Uber's another one that's reinvented the uh, market for taxi rides. So um, I like that notion of market shaping. Yes. So injecting the customer view into an organization's decision-making process obviously is critical. And if I think back to many of my past roles in, in many of those organizations, we had somebody come to the meeting and assume the, the mantle of the customer. And it became a bit of a trend to say, okay, who's representing the voice of the customer in this meeting? And in the conversations I've had with you over the last little while, one of the things that keeps coming to mind for me is, well, how did that person who was representing the customer actually know what the customer wants? Um, and I'm interested in your thoughts around what are the key areas that an organisation needs to focus on to really understand the, uh, you know, how they can deliver competitive, superior value to their customers? Where, where is that? What are the focus areas? Firstly, you've got this paradox of the um, inside-out thinking versus outside-in thinking. Uh-huh. And I encountered that back in the 80s when I did some work for Auckland City Council. City, city councils are not always particularly customer-centric because they're composed of people who have got professional views as to what the city needs. And that might be, you might call that an inside-out view. The engineers know what sort of sewage system we want, right? The punter wouldn't know. Customer centricity always has to be tempered by the business economics, by the strategy of the company itself as to how it wants to compete. And, and how able it is to compete in different ways. You clearly need leadership. You need metrics um, that reflect the needs that you're trying to meet so that you can check whether or not the things that you're trying to achieve are actually working. And the people you have to ask about that are the customers. What I like about that notion you just talked about is that someone is even introducing how does the customer feel about this to decision-making. Uh-huh. I mean, I've, I've sat in rooms with clients where the, the managing director actually said, you know, David, sometimes you've just got to do things to customers. We've all been in meetings like that, and we've probably sometimes seen the results of that way of thinking. So you need leadership and a culture that says we shouldn't be doing this or making these decisions without at least considering the impact, the likely impact on how customers feel about us and our products and how using our products and so on. So you've got to get a balance. Yeah. So what you're telling me is there's no, there's no sort of magic measure or sort of lead key indicator that's a bit of a, I don't know what we call it, a canary in the cage. Well, there is. There is a canary in the cage. No, I didn't say that. Right. Push push back on that. There is a canary. If you're, if you're using predictive analytics, which is what your Verint 4C platform does, right. you can see that if we continue on this path with this level of satisfaction or value, but if you've got a variable that you know has a relationship with what people intend to do, um, then you follow that variable on a, on a regular basis. Why wouldn't you? And if you see that number dipping, you act. And so I, I talk a lot about having information on the table at the sort of meetings you're talking about, which enable managers to see sooner and act faster. Because that's the world we live in. Yeah. It's what customers are doing. So why wouldn't you want the same input into your management meetings where you're making decisions that impact customers? Mm-hmm. So it's not sufficient to say, or it's not an excuse to say there are, there are too, too many variables and too many factors that you, you as an organisation need to set about to understand those. I don't think that's any sort of excuse. You've got to know what are the key metrics 
and you've got to be on them, the decision makers have to feel comfortable with the data. They have to be satisfied that the data is rigorous, that they can rely on it to make decisions. Yes. And, and, and so that is a critical catalyst to the company as a whole taking more notice of the, the metrics that are put in front of them. They need to believe in those metrics. You need to be able to demonstrate why those metrics are the ones that matter, how they're linked to the outcomes you're trying to drive, and be able to demonstrate that over time. So you just used a phrase which I've heard you use uh, several times in different conversations that you and I have had, which is this see sooner, act faster, uh, which I love. And I, I think it, it it reminds me, obviously, of the, the, the sort of immediacy of the experience that guys in contact centres have when they, they, they talk to customers and, and have a finger on the pulse and often... Mm. I always smile when later on some senior exec finally decides to act on an insight that they've heard about from a contact centre that's finally filtered its way up the organisational hierarchy and the, the contact centre staff, when they see the big announcement, all groan and roll their eyes and say, well, we've known that for the last you know, 25 years. Why are they only just figured that out now? So I'm interested in this. They've, they've obviously been seeing soon and not able to act. So what are the key things to getting that sort of insight and foresight up into an exec level view? Well, okay, look, you, you asked me good questions and I, I'll be honest, I don't always have the answers. And, and sometimes I, I literally shake my head in frustration at things that happen. Um, and it, it comes back, it, I think it comes back to leadership and culture. Um, because at the end of the day, what the chief executive wants to see on his or her desk um, and numbers that, they, that they're focusing on driving, they're the numbers that the people around them fo focus on. Um, and I, I can remember um, a chief executive saying to me on one occasion, um, David, if, if you don't know the answer, ask the reps. Um, but what he was sending signals to, to his team were, was, I don't want market research, I don't believe in it. Uh, so why would you listen to customers? Mm -hmm. Ross doesn't. Um, so I, I always come back to that. You have to build credibility. You have to be able to demonstrate cause and effect relationships. That's critical. As, think, think of the, here's a concrete example, and I, I like this one. I, I, if I asked your customers, Ian, to rate Verum's products and services on a scale of one to 10, bearing in mind the cost of those services, how would you rate them as being worth what you pay for them? 10 point scale, one equals poor, 10 equals excellent. Wow. I'm sitting, at a sitting around a table with the senior lead team. And they're sitting there sort of estimating what they think the number's going to be. And I come up with a score and I say, well, actually, the, the number is 7.6 on a 10-point scale. Uh -huh. And there's a bit of a nod around the table. Oh, shit, I thought it was going to be worse than that. <laughs> That's actually very good. And there's a bit of satisfaction about it, right? Then you show them the relationship between um, people who rated uh, value at that level on average and what the strength of their future intentions to repurchase or recommend are. And typically you might find that 70, 60, say 60, 60 at that level, that 60% of your customers are highly likely to recommend you. But what does that mean about the other 40%? What that means is if they're not highly likely to recommend you or they're not highly likely to repurchase from you, that potentially 40% of your net, net, your net profit is at risk. Yes. And if your 7.6 is is if you're competitive, if you've measured uh, your competitors' performance in the eyes of their customers on the same metric, and they're rating their 
competitor's performance at eight, that says not only have you got market share at risk, you're going to you've got a churn rate and EBIT at risk, but it's probably going to be accelerated by the fact that your competitor is delivering superior value. So seven point six isn't good at all. It's bad, and it's when you know my friend Ray Kordopiska used to say, "Good is bad." It's a wake up call. It all depends on the level of loyalty that people are saying they will deliver at the level of value that you're currently perceived to be delivering. That's you tell a managing director that he's got forty percent of his EBIT at risk. You, you'll 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 get a response. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I often smile at uh, the way we measure things, particularly in customer experience uh, functions and call centres, and you know the. I often say the, the word average has snuck into our vocabulary. We talk about average handle time and average performance and average average everywhere. Um, and in fact, who wants to be average? You know, if your child comes home from school and says, guess what, mum and dad, I got the average mark for the exam. The first thing most parents said is, well, actually, yeah. what was the best mark? Um, yeah. But we allow this complacency to sneak in and we sort of exactly. accept that average performance is okay. And in fact, well, no one really wants mediocrity. You raised two points. Value is both absolute and relative. Yes. What I get for what I pay relative to what I could get from somebody else. Yeah. If, you, if, if you're giving me a 7.6 and the competitor's giving giving his customers, his or her customers an eight, they're the ones who are going to be growing market share. No question. Yeah. There's an element, isn't there, around organisations who become complacent because it's that it's only that organisation's industry silo that they function in and that that customer segment that they've dealt with. So it's almost a little bit like they don't know what hot's like because they don't know what cold is. They've only got one point of reference, which is their own internal reference with right. their own customer, their own old way of doing things. And as exactly, and that, that, that's what Cortepesca discovered. When when it, when, it, when they when their customer satisfaction scores were going up and their market share was going down, which which was a combination of not getting as many of the new to market customers and losing customers they already had. Yeah. Um, what what he what he discovered was that the competitors were getting better in absolute terms and relative terms across the full spectrum of benefits and costs. Not all experiences have the same impact on perceptions of value as others. Uh -huh. So you need to know before you invest money in improving a particular experience what impact that's going to have on perceptions of value and therefore loyalty intentions and behaviours, because then you can quantify the likely revenue effects. Now that's critically important. What, what you're reminding me though is we. And it's, it's very relevant for the current context of today's world with the pandemic, in, in a sense, in that there are, there are suddenly new lenses and new points of reference that have been introduced into this whole perception of, of value and customers' perception of an organisation. And So what, what was good enough six months ago pre-pandemic from an organisation doesn't meet their expectations any longer. And the same thing for organisations who are suddenly having to shift from a a traditional go-to-market model to a more digital model. What was acceptable in the past isn't sufficient for the for the future, and the customer expectations have changed. So perhaps you could talk a little bit, a bit, David, about the the impact of you know the pandemic in your mind and some of these changing sort of uh, environmental and uh, commercial and societal factors upon the customer. A really astute question, Ian, and I'm genuinely glad you raised it. Um, if you look at what's going on around us, if you look at the, the forces of disruption around us, yeah. we've got environmental factors such as um, climate, by which I mean the commercial environment. We've got um, we've got things that competitors do, new entrants doing new things, shaping people's expectations accordingly. 
secondly, um, we've we've got um, natural events like COVID, the pandemic. We've got what people call the, th the fourth industrial revolution. For example, the Internet of Things. People's awareness of this thing called corporate social responsibility or social value, which will bring wow. me back to the topic of stakeholders in a minute. Yes. We know that um, over time, um, people take on board some of these things and they become part of what they look for when they're thinking about value and who they want to deal with. And in some industries and with some cu customers, these things are becoming more dominant in their thinking when they're choosing, who do I, who do I want to give my business to? And yeah. then the, do you the, think the, customers know that that's why they feel drawn to a particular organisation? Because it's almost an intuitive sort of gut feel as to you feel aligned to a particular organisation mm -hmm. and something about its values and its its market perception that particularly attracts you. And my, my sense is, you know, if I use people I know as an example, sometimes they don't really know. They just have this affiliation with that particular particular brand. And I think what you're telling me is mm. that the, the magic for the organisation is to understand those intuitive, almost intangible things in a new way as one of the multiple data points that they've got to try and get their, their heads around. Sure. So you've got to strike a balance between the different stakeholders and their needs. And that's the tricky but that's why I think it's very difficult for something like a city council. Like you can, you know, the old saying, you can please some of the people some of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. We've got, you probably know we've got an election campaign going on over here at the moment. Uh -huh. And and the polls come out literally daily. And it's interesting. You asked me a question earlier about how frequently you should, for example, run surveys as quarterly enough or whatever. Um, I've always favoured where it's possible. And now, we have the technology at our fingertips to do it, to be to be measuring as close to real time as possible. Um, and that's what's happening with the political events here. And what we're seeing is every time they release a new poll, and there was one last week, there's another one tonight, the numbers have changed. What that says is that people are placing different emphasis on different aspects of what attracts them to vote for a particular party and their perceptions of the performance on those parties, on those, on those um, aspects or drivers of voting choice are also changing. Yes. Literally daily, weekly. So why wouldn't you do that if you're if you're running a retail business? Yeah, it, I think it highlights to me the, uh, the, the the analogy I always use is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I did one of those you know, little dipstick things in the swimming pool to check the chlorine in the pH balance yeah. and, you know, check yeah. it was okay. And later on that day, I thought, oh, look, I better take the bottle of water up to the pool shop to get them to test it. So, of course, the dipstick thing looks great and everything is in balance. I go to the pool shop and it's like, oh, no, it's terrible. There's all these other variables that they mm. suddenly check in their computerized water testing system. So my little dipstick is obviously only a very, very small sample and only measures a couple of parameters. And obviously the pool shop can do the, the full range of analysis yeah. across multi, multiple factors. And I think what you're telling me is, the one little dipstick thing every now and then is, well, that's, that dipstick is, is not good enough. That dipstick is NPS. That's right, yes. So the complexity of all the other not, variables. Not, not you, Ian. Ian. I'm not saying you're the dipstick around here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. I feel so much better. So yeah. is, there a, is there a, if I take that pool shop analogy, are the, as an organisation, are the, in your mind, uh, a group of other measures that they must have their their fingers on and they must understand and they must be considering as a sort of a magic set of, 
of things that are critical? Uh, here's the kind of architecture that I've come to know is useful. And I won't say it's the best in class or the best there is, because there'll always be something with something better. But what I know is you need to understand what's driving decisions. Uh-huh. Who Who's the person who makes a decision whether we're going to bank with ANZ or Westpac, where we're going to open our account? You need to know You need to know what drives value for the decision maker and their key influences. Yes. Um, and in a business setting, in a business to business, you've got this idea of a buying centre or a decision-making group or decision-making unit where somebody ultimately is the final decision-maker, might be two or three who together agree, but there might be five or six or eight people around the table who have, a, have an oar in the decision. But when you're looking at, uh, and that's a sort of high-level decision-maker group, but when you're measuring, um, uh, for example, customer satisfaction with a particular experience, you go to the user of the experience, you go to the recent user of the experience, um, when you've got certain indicators that you know are certain measures that you know are drivers of overall evaluation of value, you then set up a series of hard measures, which I'd call hard measures, observation measures. For example, customers might tell you they don't want to have to wait around in a bank, right? Standing in a queue for 20 minutes to get served. Not many people like that. So let's say that you find that, you, that it has a high impact on customer perceptions of value and you're not performing particularly well on it, and there's a business case to drive that up, right? So you wow. measure the, the, the time, actually waiting time that people have. So you line up your fact-based measure with the perceptual measure. And over time, you would calibrate the level of waiting time that is optimal. If you go beyond this, people are going to start to show discontent when they, when they fill in your survey. Mm-hmm. If you go better than, the, than that standard, it doesn't change the perceptual score much, but it costs you more money to deliver a given level of service. So um, I like the idea of having decision-making metrics, of having predicted outcome metrics, and of having actual metrics related to the outcome that are hard and that you can see the relationship between your perceptual metrics and those outcome metrics. So you're touching on, I guess for me, you're getting me to think about what I've sort of learned, I guess, from you that are more of the I was going to say the futuristic measures are probably not really, and I probably shouldn't describe them like that in, from your perspective, but predictive and prescriptive. So as a, is there a, is there a quick uh, summary definition you, you can give our listeners in terms of why prescriptive and predictive measures are, are so important and, and, and how to evolve to that level of insight in their organisation? Well, I can't talk about prescriptive measures so much, but I certainly can talk about predictive ones. Uh-huh. And that the, the, the reason that we want to talk about predictive measures is that we need to, we need to understand what's happened. So, so we need to understand the past, and you could call that hindsight. Uh-huh. We need to understand what's happening at the moment, and we might call that insight. Um, we need to understand what's likely to happen, because if it's bad, we want to, we want to nip it in the butt. Yeah. Uh, so if we can see that the level of value we're delivering is dropping and it's dropping on a couple of measures that we know are drivers of value, like in the case of uh, Vodafone, I mentioned uh, at the time we did that work back and it was Bell South, actually. So I'm going back to about 1996. Um, uh, they were bought out by, by Vodafone. Um, their customers placed high weighting on the issue of calls staying connected. 
Not surprising, is it really? 61% of, call, of people were making phones in the car, their yeah. calls in the car. And, and, and so we were getting a high number of, they were getting a poor score on calls staying connected. And um, so they needed to firstly figure out why call, they were dropping calls and what they needed to fix in order to drive up their performance on that metric. And when that performance met metric improved, fewer a large, smaller percentage of calls was being dropped. The overall value metric went up and the intention to recommend went up. So they could have actually quantified the financial impact of improving their performance on dropping calls. Um, but of course, what it told them was that until you get this problem fixed, you aren't going to be adding customers at the rate you want. Right. Well, look, David, I'm going to um, change tack for a, a few minutes just as we, we wrap up our conversation, which has always been very enjoyable, and just ask you a question around things that you like to read. I imagine you're a fairly wide reader of, of different um, books and articles and materials. If you had to uh, share one top recommendation for our listeners around a, a an insightful book to read. Maybe I shouldn't use that term when talking to you. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about we're talking about business books here, aren't we? Oh, uh, well, it could be business or, or fiction, okay. really. I'm interested. Well, I'm going to give a you three. Feel for right? what you like personally. Okay, well, I'm going to give you three books I recommend you read. Two I recommend, and one I think have a look at it and see what you think. Right. Um, uh, there's there's a book written um, by a colleague of mine from Wharton Business School. I think I've mentioned to you before, and I, I stole the title from him: "See Sooner, Act Faster." Right. Um, and it's about um, the use of foresight and the importance of detecting what he calls weak signals of change. Okay. Uh, and doing that, and one of the things I could have talked about today but didn't choose to was uh, the need to be systematic in collecting data that indicates things might be changing around you. And the evidence is that most of us see the see the strong signals, not so good at picking up the weak ones. So that that need for foresight, that's a very good book. And his name is George Day. Okay. D-A-Y, and he's from the Wharton Business School. You can get it on, well, the authors are actually Norman and Day, M-O-R-M-A-N and Day, and okay. it's, you can buy it on Amazon. Right. Um, if you want fun. to read a book that is um, all about Machiavellian behaviour, um, I recommend John Dean's book, Blind Ambition. John Dean was the White House counsel at the time of Watergate. Okay. Uh, and because he was in the gun and he realised he was right smack in the middle of a conspiracy to obstruct justice charge, he decided to come clean and he didn't spare any punches. He's mm -hmm. the guy who said there was a cancer growing on the presidency. Um, so that, that is a fascinating book for anyone who's who remembers Watergate. Okay. Uh, in more recent times, if you're, if you're wanting to try and understand what's going on in the White House at the moment, John John Bolton has written a book called It Happened, The Room It Happened, and the room, the room It All Happened In or something like that. Um, and it it, des it describes a dysfunctional, completely dysfunctional group of decision makers. It's a bit scary when you realise the power they've got in their hands. Yes, okay. Mm. All right, interesting selection there. So maybe now if I ask you a non-business, non-work-related question about a TV show or movie, what would you recommend? What are you watching on Netflix when you're locked down at home and you've got nothing else to do? Um, Okay, I watched a fantastic uh, Netflix show the other day called, well, two I recommend. One is a, one is a Norwegian one called Nobel, N-O-B-E-L. Right. Um, and it's um, it's a gripping drama, I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, with some relationship to the Nobel Peace Prize, 
but it's a, it's essentially political. But the Scandinavians have got a, a, a their, their style is more like English TV than um, than American TV. It's very good. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Um, there's another there's an Israeli program called Thauda, um, which was um, it's based on the internal intelligence service and its attempts to anticipate terrorist acts and and snuff them out before they occur. Yeah. Okay. There are a couple of there are a couple of programs I recommend. Well, thank you. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy chasing those up and um, getting involved in reading and watching. So, David, um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. As always, we could keep talking forever, I'm sure, and um, look forward to our next conversation. But uh, for now, it comes to the conclusion. So I just wanted to wish you all the best, and I'm sure you'll enjoy getting out of lockdown in the, the coming few days, and I'm sure that your family will have a I agree. Well, thank- in the lead up to the election as well, yeah. watch with interest what happens. Thank you, Ian, and I look forward to hearing the results of this uh, podcast. And I'll probably listen to it and think, did I really say that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just look, great- I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to um, to talk with you and discuss some of these things that we've got so much interest in in common. Thanks, David.